right, Luke chapter 23. Uh, here we are. We're looking at the last thing of Jesus from the cross. I'm going to read this whole passage, 44 through 49, because we're going to talk about a few things around this for context. So starting in verse 44, it says, it was now about the sixth hour. What time is that? Noon. Yeah. So their day started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour, uh, it was noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, uh, other, other gospels talk about how it was torn from top to bottom. It says, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Here in this verse, I want us to look at a few things uh, that that were, um, were, as we're going to open this up tonight. Uh, there's, a, there's a few things, you know, as, as we're reading through, I, I like to read from guys like Matthew Henry. Uh, he, he's a theologian that I love to read. Warren Wiersbe is a guy that's actually still alive, uh, but he's, he's pretty old. Uh, so he's, he's attributed as scholarly for you, for you people that write papers and stuff like that. So uh, John Calvin is another person. So, you know, reading from all these, you know, we, we get this, some information for us tonight. Uh, they opened up a few things as, as we look into this. Uh, first off, I want you to notice that there's a couple of things that are pretty supernatural that happened during the time of Christ's death, in, that, in, the, in this moment of Christ's death. It says this, the first one was that basically it's almost like there was an eclipse. Now, it wasn't an eclipse. Um, we can talk more about that. The Passover is when there's a full moon. So there was, there was no eclipse that was taking place at this point. But that, that it says this, that about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. That's, that's not normal. It says for three hours in the middle of the day, there was darkness over the whole land. Now, I know Ryan had talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago, or I did, one of us did. So we don't want to go back and revisit that, but just know that that was something that was going on, and that continued for three hours. Now, I want to show you how God does some things to where he shows that his hand is on, on this event, just like it's on, on other events in the past. How many days of darkness were there in the land of Egypt before, uh, the, before the 10th plague? Remember? How many did you tell us, Ryan? Three. Three days of darkness. That, that's, how many, that's how many days of darkness that there was in the time of Egypt. Now, the symbol of three. Here there's three hours of darkness that comes before that comes before Jesus dies. So there's, there's this that takes place. And here's the other cool thing. There's the tearing of the veil. The veil tore from top to bottom. Now, why do we talk about that the veil tore from top to bottom in the temple? How tall is it? That's not normal. You're right. How high? How high is that? Huh? It's a long way. I'm just going to say this. Uh, it's a long way up. So now here's the thing. We could take a curtain and we could rip it from bottom to the top, couldn't we? Yeah, of course. But so there, it was very specific when this thing ripped. It tore from top to bottom. Now, and of course, you, you know why this is taking place. Both of what we've just talked about, that there was darkness in the land for three hours, that the curtain tore from top to bottom. You know what that sim- signifies? Both of those things were considered 
the place where God resided. Now, in Scripture, we talk about, Paul talks about the third heaven. And, and, and I've had people ask me about this before. They're like, okay, I don't get the whole third heaven, whatever. What we see out here, this is, this is what's considered the first heaven. It's, it's our atmosphere. Um, outside of our atmosphere in space is what's considered the second heaven. The third heaven is the abode of God. This is where God lives. This is where the darkness was. It was, it was in the heavens. So there was darkness in the heavens. Also, the curtain was what separated us from God. So both of these things, when scholars have opened this up and they say, this is symbolic of both places where the place of God resided. Were, were, um, what's my word I'm looking for? I've lost my word. Both the places where God resided were impacted by this. You've got the heavens. There's darkness over the whole land. The temple, the holy of holies, the, the veil that separates the two was torn from top to bottom. Both of these in, indicate that one was, was, well, we won't talk about that. We talked about that a week before. The other one's talking about the veil. We have access to God now. See, no more is, do we have to go through a mediator anymore. Christ was our mediator who, who bore our sins, and so now we have access. So very, very unique things that's going on in the world, uh, very supernatural things that's going on during the time of Jesus' death. Uh, Luke lays this out for us and things as well. But he also goes on to, to kind of explain some things that are happening in Christ's death. Look at, look at these things here. In verse 46, it says, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, very specific why it says a loud voice. Because remember a few weeks ago, I think it was Ryan that preached on this. What's the last thing he preached on? It says this, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me, right? If you go back to the Matthew account and the Mark account, they both say that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now, very, very important to remember that because this is with a loud voice. The people are seeing that Jesus is wondering, God, where did you go? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? So he cries out with a loud voice what, what's happening on. So this is what Jesus does to show earnestness of like, hey, even though during the time to where I was carrying your sin, I cry out with a loud voice to show that there is also a reconnection of me and my Savior, of, 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 of me and the Father. See, if everyone heard him say, and what seemed to be the, the appearance of doubt, then they're going to start to question whether or not Jesus was truly whom he said he was. Because he talks about, you know, I'm here to do my Father's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. They hear all of these things taking place. And when Jesus cries out in the Matthew and the Mark account, and if you go back and you read it, it very specifically says that he cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus reestablishes that connection here because with a cry of a loud voice when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was, it was a plea of saying, I commend my spirit to you. I think maybe it's what the New American Standard says. Is that what yours says? I commend my spirit to you. In other words, here, I'm giving this to you. Because remember Jesus said that no one can take my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Remember that? We looked at that in John. So he's giving his spirit to the Father. It's a trust thing. He does this with a loud voice so that people can see that he's reestablishing this. 
Now, if that sounds familiar to you, flip with me to Psalm 31 real quick. I want you to see this as well, too. In Psalm 31, verse 5, it says this. The psalmist is writing this. That's David is the psalmist in this. He's writing in verse 5. He says, Into your hand I commit my spirits. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You notice that, that Jesus chose to use the same words that David used there? Why is that? Why did he use Scripture in this part? People would recognize it. Okay. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how even when Jesus hung on the cross, Scripture was still flowing through his mind? Because Jesus was what this whole time? He's in control. Everything that's taking place is very purposeful in the life of Christ. These guys are not killing him, and Jesus is not shocked by, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening to me. Everything that's taken place is under the control of our Savior. Jesus quotes Scripture because Jesus also says that he came to fulfill Scripture. So even even as he's saying this, he's going to use things that they're going to recognize from Scripture to show that I'm still in control of this whole situation. It may seem chaotic. It may seem like, like they're taking my life from me, but I'm about to show you that I'm laying my life down on my own accord. So that's, that's another way that, 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 um, that he explains his death. Here's, here's a, 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 a second way that he does this. He calls him father. Now, what was it that he just has called his creator? Well, our creator. What is it that he's just called the father? Remember? What was the phrase that he said right before this? He says, it is finished. And then moments before that, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, remember when Ryan talked about that? He he explained why it was not, Father, why have you forsaken me? But instead, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he could feel the separation that was taking place, that God was actually not even looking upon him at that moment when he, when he carried our sin. Again, this is another one of those phrases to show that there's a reestablishment, reconnection back with the Father. When he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit or I commend my spirit. He's reestablishing because where there was separation, Jesus is about to reestablish and be reconnected with the Father. He's given his spirit up. We'll talk about spirit here in just a moment as well, too. Here's another thing I want you to see. That all of this was pretty peculiar. Why do I say that? Because who was our mediator to God? Jesus. See, we, we approach the Father on the behalf of the Son. We, we have the appearances of righteousness because of the blood of Jesus. So here in this passage of Scripture, we, we see that he's the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He's the one that we pray to, remember? How is it that you end most of your prayers? Now, honestly, it's because tradition, this is the way that you're taught, but I'm hoping as you grow, you'll start to realize that it actually is in Jesus' name that we can actually even ask or pray for anything. We end all of our prayers that way because to us, he is the priest type. But he also, in this part, is what? He's the sacrifice. He's the spotless lamb. He's the final sacrifice. He's, the, the, he's closing the line of the priestly 
line. He's the last in that whole line of priests that have that come. So Jesus is doing all of these things just on the cross. So he's not only is he the priest, but he's also the sacrifice because the price has to be paid because what does Romans tell us about the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there has to be a price that's paid. This is Jesus cheerfully and willingly saying that I will lay my life down for them. In Hebrews, he says this, I come to do your will by which we are all sanctified. Jesus did all of that. That was his plot. And he's fulfilling his place here when he's doing this. Here's another thing that his death explains to us, that it signifies that he is dependent on the Father for his resurrection. Now, this is another one of these things, and I'll just kind of like very superficially go across this. But we know that according to 2 Thessalonians, we all have a what? A soul, a spirit, and a body, right? All right, let's, let's talk plainly. If you read any theologian, they're going to say the same thing about Jesus, and this is, they're going to say this here, because Jesus is giving up, what does he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, he is about to be separated. His spirit is going to go off, and then three days later, he's going to be re- re- reunited with his body. I mean, if you, if you would have sat in the tomb for three days you would have saw that the body of Jesus still stayed right there. But it wasn't until the third day that when they came, at some point during that time, that, that the Father reunited his spirit with his body. So all of that to say, Jesus was a man, just like us. See, we, we, we hear that all the time. We always see that. But here's a picture of what we're seeing when he says that I'm commending my spirit to you, That way it'll be in paradise. What does he tell the thief on the cross? The thief is right next to him. He says, for today you will be with me in paradise. All of that is explaining the death of Jesus where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here. And everybody that's around is affected by what goes on in Jesus' life. And here's the thing. That has became the center point of all of our time. We've talked about this before. You know this. What year is this right now? 2016. We measure that from the time of Christ, 2016 years ago, from his birth. Anytime that we talk about something happened in like 700 and something BC, the BC stands for before Christ. That was before the death of Christ. So in other words, Christ is the center of everything in our world, even our whole system of telling time. This is all that's going on. Now, it affected our life, yes. But what about the people that were right there that day? How was their life affected? Look at what it says here about the centurion. It says, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. Now, remember, this is a Roman. This is someone that was, that was there, that was to guard the crowd control. The Roman centurion says this. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And I like how Matthew and Mark do it. They go a little deeper because he said, surely this must have been the Son of God. 
Well, let's see the world from his view for a moment. Six hours later, when this guy that's been on the cross, Jesus at this point has been on the cross for six hours. It was about 9 a.m. So six hours later, after he's hung there in pain and agony, for the last three hours that he was on the cross, there's darkness. There's been an earthquake. There's been all this kind of stuff that goes on that's not normal for this area. I would imagine he probably had heard all the hustle and bustle that happened in the temple when the veil had torn from top to bottom. That probably freaked a, little, a few people out. But now, and then all of a sudden, he sees that they stick the, the, the spear into this guy's ribs. And he sees how the method of which this guy died. It wasn't to where he was, had his head up, gasping for those last breaths of air like we talked about. But instead, he simply bowed his head. And laid it down like he was going to sleep and gave up his spirit, which we see here. All of that affected the Roman centurion. Because he said, this man must have been innocent. And then in Matthew and Mark, like I said, he goes on to talk about how this truly must have been the son of God. But that's not the only person that this affected. What about all the spectators? Remember what scripture says here about the people that were around It says this in verse 48, and all the crowd, all the spectators, whatever your translation says, it says, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. Have you ever made a mistake? Yeah. I mean, just so bad you were like, here it is in sports. My bad. That was my bad. You saw that last night if you're watching some of the games. There was a pass to Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, and then maybe this was the night before. Dirk was coming around on baseline. And uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but he passed it to him. And I don't know what Dirk was doing. He must have been like looking at the girl in the stands because it went right by him. And the guy looked at Dirk and he was like, my bad. What, what is he doing? What is this? He's beating his breast. Why is he doing that? It's a sign of saying, hey, my mistake. Now, this is a much deeper point of what we're talking about. Now, think about where these people were. This is probably most of the same crowd that's been with him as he's walked through the streets, most of the same crowd that's been hollering crucify him. These are the people that have been standing there watching this thing the whole time. Some of these people may have still even been in the crowd before Pilate when he says, who do you want me to release? Do you want me to release Barabbas or do you want me to release Jesus? This was still probably some of the same crowd that was saying, Barabbas, that's who we want you to release. Release that dude. Kill him. These are the same people. Their life was affected. Now, I will say this. There's no other evidence in Scripture that says that their life was so affected that they surrendered their life to the Lord. But here's what they did. They left beating their, bre- beating their breast. How could we have been so stupid? How could we have done this? Look what it says. They had assembled for the spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they left beating their breast. Have you ever realized that you've done something so wrong? You're like, man, only if I would have done this instead. I would imagine that's about the place that these people were at. They knew that what they had just seen take place was a mistake. And most of them left beating their breast because they were a part of the problem. They left defeated. 
And then it goes on to say this, who else was affected? Jesus' Jesus's posse. All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, if you'll remember back a few weeks ago, Jesus on the cross, what is one of the seven sayings that he said from the cross? Woman, behold your son. The beloved and his mother were at the foot of the cross at some point. Something took place because other places in Scripture says that they were at a distance. I have no idea what took place, but it was so chaotic or something was going on that those people that were even closest to him were at a distance at this point. It had an effect on them as well. Guys, here's the thing. Jesus has an effect on every single person in the world. It's not going to have an effect on my life. That's the effect he's had on your life. That you think that he has nothing to do with you. Others that surrender to him, that's how it affects their life. Let me show you something else here. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit is the very last thing that we hear from the cross. And I'm going to close with this. I want you to see how awesome God is. How many sayings are there from the cross? How many? Seven. What does Scripture say about the number seven? Number of completion. Absolutely. What else? It's number of completion, number of perfection. Why do we say this? Because here it is. We, we saw that it's a number of completion, number of perfection because of creation. So if, if that is true, so Jesus then is still showing the perfectness and the completion of God in his death. All because of the number seven. Seven also is a number of rest when it comes to finished work. We really see this in creation. How many days of creation were there? Six. But we say it, call it the seven days of creation. Why? God rested on the seventh day. Guys, what you're about to see is a person that is about to go into a rest. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. It's rest after a finished work. (laughs) What is it that Jesus said just right before this? It was the sixth thing. It is finished. Jesus' work was done. And remember, I told you I couldn't find, I searched for whose whose summary this is, and I still don't know, but one of the theologians that I read said this, it was the picture of a man after a hard day's work that finally makes it to his bed and lays his head back into a peaceful sleep. Jesus had labored and labored and worked, and the sixth thing that he said is he said it is finished and on the seventh saying he said 
Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It was a phrase of rest. Has Jesus impacted your life like that? Do you struggle with life still today? Trying to do things your way, trying to get things just right. Here's the thing. Jesus has fought for you. Jesus has completed the work. We, last week we talked about Ethelbert Stauffer. His quote is this. What God began by the word in the days of creation, God finished by the word in the days of redemption. On the sixth day, when God created you, he finished his creation, and he said, it is very good. And then he rested. The sixth thing that Jesus said from the cross after his labor for you. He used the same phrasing and wording that when he completed creation, he has just now completed what he started there. Have you found that rest? Guys, so many people never do. They never find that at all. We still try to do things our way, in my way, and for my own. Jesus did everything for you there. We've spent seven weeks now looking at the last things that Jesus said on the cross. How awesome is God that we can take the cross and we can take creation And we can put those things together and we see the same very imprint of God on both. That's not by accident. When Joshua took over from Moses, God did some work in Moses' life, Joshua's life, to show that he was with Joshua just like he was Moses. One of the biggest things is Moses parted the Red Sea. With his staff, he held it up, and God parted the Red Sea for Moses. And the people walked across on dry land. Forty years later, after those that didn't believe anymore had died, and the new generation of people were standing on the banks of the Jordan River, which is symbolic of death, standing on the banks of the Jordan River, God says, I want you to see I'm with my guy Joshua in the same way that I was Moses. Priest, when you step from the bank into the Jordan, your foot will hit dry ground. It's not going to part until you take that first step. But when you take that first step, you'll see the river part. And the whole Jordan, in the high season, it says in Scripture, parted, and they walked across on dry ground. Jesus came, lived, and died to show that what he started in creation, 
which was fellowship, was now reestablished through Christ. Stop running. Stop running and just open your eyes. Because I truly believe that through the seven things that Jesus said on the cross, we see the completed work is now fit for my life and for yours.